listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. So, Jeff. <laughs> How it was going to open was in Spanish. So, jefe. But then it, I couldn't think of, you know, I knew him said I've been thinking, but I couldn't think of the words in Spanish for I've been thinking, which was really disappointing to me. I was like, I should know what that is, but I don't know off the top of my head. Which is why I got I had a sudden awkward pause there. And why in Spanish? I don't know. It just came to me. Jeff Jeff is Hefe. I think it is. <laughs> I like it when you call me that. Hefe. Yeah. So in actually, Seller, I think Hefe is boss. Isn't yeah. It? Yeah. It is. Yeah. Yeah. No wonder you like it. <laughs> yeah. That takes me back to my high school Spanish classes. That's funny. Yeah. So obviously, you're not a Espanol thought leader. I am most certainly not. And I think we're actually continuing to prove that my bilingual days, if they ever were, it was a promise of that are, are not anywhere near me. That's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> You're speeding downhill. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Whatever other languages I've picked up are long gone. So, Yeah. Well, we should tell all of our listeners you're celebrating a birthday tomorrow. So happy birthday. We should not tell our listeners that, actually. We should edit this out, Wayne. This section needs to be cut from the episode. This is not, this didn't happen. So we should not tell our listeners that at all. It did happen. And happy birthday to you, buddy. (laughs) Thank you very much. But we won't talk about. No matter how old you get, I'm always going to be younger. (laughs) And maybe in spirit. All right, man. Let's get into this. Okay. Good topic. Yeah, so we're do we're doing thought leadership strategy in five steps. I changed the topic on the fly from content strategy to thought leadership strategy. Is there a difference? Uh, yeah, I, I think there's definitely a difference. I think that depends how you look at it, right? On the one hand, you could say that in the world of marketing, thought leadership is a subset of of the content marketing universe, right? You know, thought leadership. And I've written about this in the past. It's sort of a, a narrow slice of the broader explosion of content marketing. On the other hand, I would argue that thought leadership is broader because it's more all-encompassing of your strategy. It's not just about marketing. As our good friend and, and past guest, Bob Bidet, would point out, it's thought leadership in a professional services firm anyway, is ultimately the strategy of the business. It's the future of the business. The topics you choose to own now will be the problems you're solving for clients two or three years from now. So it's much bigger than any marketing initiative in that context. So in a weird way, thought leadership is more narrow than content and broader than content at the same time, if that's possible. I would fall into that latter school as well. I think most firms get that wrong. Yeah, The more sophisticated and, and successful firms get that right. Honestly, I don't use the terms thought leadership or content strategy very often. And I purposely try to avoid them with my clients. I prefer the term intellectual capital because to me, intellectual capital encapsulates not just the thinking and the articulation and the content development of that into white papers or webinars or or whatever, which is traditional kind of thought leadership. But intellectual capital extends into the solution set. And to me, those are inextricably linked and they're often disconnected in marketing efforts because people, firms go to market with solution first instead of the thinking and the problem and the issues we've talked in the past. Yeah. So as we kick this off, for for all intents and purposes, we're kind of mixing these together, but there's you'll probably hear in our comments and how we talk about these distinctions that most people may not make, but you and I make for very specific strategic reasons. 
Yeah. You know, I think it was about two years ago, you and I did a webinar on intellectual capital. And in the lead up to that webinar, I actually sat down and wrote an article to reconcile intellectual property from intellectual capital and thought leadership and content as well. The terms get kind of like used as synonyms, but they're really not. They're all sort of a little bit different. In our vernacular, you know, I, we use the phrase thought leadership. We talk about thought leadership strategy. And we do it in the context of what you just said, sort of this notion of a broader intellectual capital agenda, recognizing that, you know, the, the thought leadership strategy should govern, you know, what is it? You know, you asked me to kind of open with that is it should govern the business challenges that you want to own for the foreseeable future, i.e. topic. What are the issues that your clients face that you want to own now and for an extended period of time, not the next three months, probably at least the next three years, possibly for all time? right? Like it's it could be any one of those horizons. And I think when you say own, what you're saying is it's you're going to invest in content and marketing for that. You're going to design specific solutions for it. And hopefully in the process, you're going to build some tangible IP that is uniquely yours that no one else has. If you do it really, really well, that's what you're going after, right? You asked in the setup, you said we should talk about some prerequisites, you know, so, you know, so I think we've sort of covered why it matters and what it is, but you suggested we talk about some prerequisites. And I thought you actually had some good suggestions there. So maybe you can share. In order to invest in a thought leadership strategy, what do you need to have in place in order to do it in the first place? I think is what you mean by that, right? Yeah. Did I say some good things? You did. You said some great things. <laughs> do you remember what they were? See, I told you Jeff's older than I am. No one, no uh, one believes me. Yeah. That's funny. If I knew you were going to put me on the spot, I would have written them down. I have found that there's some really important things that firms need to think through before they, they go down this path. And I do think they need to go down this path if they really want to differentiate their firms and have a successful marketing effort and sales effort. Yeah. For, and delivery. The, to your point, yeah. of solution design. They yeah. all, they all hand, and it's all client experience, as you always say, right? It's like- yeah. All yeah. three of those things, client experience. Otherwise, you're just an also ran, you're a fast follower, you're already moving into commoditization. So it's important to think these through. But some of the prerequisites that I think are really important is you have to make a commitment to the strategy. And by making a commitment to that, you have to designate thought leaders you need to reward them for generating thought leadership and you need to give them the time to do it. It needs to be a priority. This cannot be something that is done when we have time, right? When all the other work is done, we can come and do thought leadership or, oh, the pipeline is dwindling. Let's ramp something up so we can generate leads. It just doesn't work that way. And so many firms say they're committed to this, but they don't act like it because they don't reinforce and reward the proper behaviors and sustain the proper behaviors. It's, it's just, you know, these sprints and recover, <laughs> sprint and recover. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's two things I want to lump on top of what you said. One, of course, is money. I mean, it's you know you have to give the thought leaders both the time to develop thought leadership, but you need to give them resources for support because I think one of the big mistakes firms make is they assume that they see any visible thought leader and they think that person sort of is some magical unicorn that can write and speak and and 
analyze information and develop compelling insights, usually there's a there's a team of people around them that are enabling all that to happen. The second thing I wanted to piggyback on what you said, which I really, this came up in a call I have with a prospective client or a client recently, and I don't remember exactly, I have to go through my notes, but the comment was said to me that, well, Jason, we've cultivated a client-first culture. And so getting people to take time away from clients to, to develop thought leadership has been difficult. And I think that's a, that's a cultural problem because I think when you are developing thought leadership, you are helping your clients because you're helping your prospective clients, your, your, your future clients and your existing clients, and you're stepping back and you're really digging into you know, the problems they face and trying to come up with better ways to solve those problems. So it's sort of like, I love that you kind of went to culture and that you do have to kind of come back to your team and say, guys, there's a reason, guys and gals, there's a reason we're doing this, right? And that's because this helps us help our clients. That is so interesting. We're, we're a client-first organization, so we don't have time for thought leadership creation. That's, yeah, yeah that's kind of, that, was my, that was my reaction I, I'm too. I'm sure there's some deep thinking in there somewhere. Yeah. Uh, so I don't want to uh, completely discount it, but on the surface, that is a bizarre statement. Yeah. No, I agree. It just, I agree. It just seems inconsistent, and the two are not in any stretch of the imagination mutually exclusive. Well, yeah, I think I think it's you know it just comes down to this belief that in a lot of firms that our our most valuable thing to do is to work directly one on one with a client. That's our most valuable use of resources to help them solve their problems. And any use of resources that is not that is a is a poor use of resources. And I just think that that's not true. I think frequently you're helping your client even more when you step back and try to look at their unique problems and then try to see how they they dovetail with the broader universe of clients like and seeking better solutions. So at the end of the day, that's what thought leadership's about, finding better ways to solve a burning, pressing problem more often than not. And that's why you do it in the first place. So you find a better mousetrap, right? That's the goal. All right. You want to dig into the five steps? Let's dig in. All right. Let's dig in here. So as usual, I had like 27 steps and I condensed them to five and gave them innocuous phrases to try to tie them all together. So um, I did my best to make it five. Five is hard, but anyway, I think it's a pretty good five. So I'll, I'll walk you through each one and you can certainly pick on the edges of each one of them. So the first one I, I said was align on your ideal client is step one. And the reason I said align is when I think about if you haven't taken the time to figure out who your ideal client is already, that's a whole different process and that's a whole different five steps. And I think that that's a different thing. But I think before you start a thought leadership strategy, it's important that you get everybody that's involved to agree on, okay, here's what we know about our ideal client. And I kind of put it into two, into well, three buckets as you heard me talk through the years. You know, one is what you know about your clients, both demographically and firmographically. So what do you know about your best clients in terms of who are they as people and where do they work and the types of organizations where you show up your best, as you like to say. And then the second half of this is having a conversation about what you think you know about them psychographically. And the reason I say what you think you know is what do you think their frustrations and aspirations are? And have that conversation. So you start to form some hypotheses about, well, I think the biggest challenge is this. I think the biggest frustration is this. But I think it's important that in this first step, you you acknowledge as a group, you don't really know. You just think you do. And you think you do because you have regular interactions with clients and you've made some inferences about what their biggest challenges and, and aspirations are based on those interactions, but frequently you never directly ask them. 
in that language. And, and often you're working a project or you're working a specific situation and the context isn't right to have that conversation anyway. So even if you are asking them, it's sort of like the wrong context in which to get that insight. But it's important that you take the time to sort of document that as a group and say, hey, this is what we know. This is what we think we know. And now you've got a baseline for which everything you're going to do that follows. This is such a critical step. I just saw two examples of this last week in conversations with clients and, and prospects. The first one was a cybersecurity firm that's on a, a rapid growth trajectory. And when I started having conversations around point of view and in thought leadership, their perspective was, well, the only way to segment and think about this is by industry, right? Because these yeah. industries have specific security issues. And I threw out, you know, three or four other ways to think about it. And the CEO went, wow, you know, I never thought about that because, you know, a firm of this size would have, you know, this type of IT organization and they would have these types of issues. And all of a sudden, you know, he's, he's created five more sub-segments in thinking through the issues that they would have from a totally different perspective. And so I think when you sit down and you start kind of slicing that matrix that you just said, the psychographic, firmographic, demographic types of things, and then add on a couple of other you know, kind of variables or attributes, you'd be surprised how smart thinkers open up to new white space in those areas. So I, I like that you, you said this. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And it's, I think it's important too, in this context, you don't want to get too bogged down to your point on like tons of nuance. And then you end up with this massive segmentation exercise because that's not the idea. I mean, the idea is actually to sort of extrapolate up. So like how you kind of said, well, it's, it's sort of the easiest segmentation to do. And from a marketing perspective is industries, right? It's like the easiest thing you can possibly do. So a lot of us just go there instinctively because it's like the first place you go. But in thought leadership, you know, sometimes you're, you're really looking for ways that you can build a point of view that's broader than any one industry, you know, more often than not, um, unless you're a single industry firm, right? And so I like that you kind of said, let's look for other ways to look at it because there's other ways you can think about this that are not always readily apparent. Okay. So, so that's step one is align on your ideal client. Step two is qualitative research. And for us, we always start with just conversational one-on-one -on -one interviews, internal and external. So start usually internally, interview practice and business like business unit leaders, business development managers, client relationship managers, anyone that regularly interacts with your clients, your ideal clients, the ones that you're trying to align on. And you're literally just having a conversation with them about what they see as their clients' most pressing business challenges, biggest aspirations. You know, you're trying to get under, again, underneath that psychographic, what we know about it. And then simultaneously do an, into those same interviews, sort of cross-sectional with some of your best clients. So, you know, again, if, if you take away this notion of we're trying to build a thought leadership strategy for the types of clients we really want to do business with, we're already doing business with some of them now. And th there's a reason that we say they're our best clients, that they allow us to show up as our best. So let's talk to them, you know, in a very, you know, candid, candid way 
about what they feel are their biggest challenges, you know, and within your area of expertise, meaning that like if you're an operations consulting firm, you're going to kind of tend towards, you know, operational matters. If you're a strategy firm, you're going to tend towards strategic issues. You don't have to necessarily. You can certainly go broader or more narrow based on what you want to do as a firm or where you're trying to go, but usually you're going to try to direct that conversation. But the reason it's qualitative is you're trying to get at that psychographic piece. You're just trying to get at frustrations and aspirations. You know, what are the challenges that they see as the most pressing ones for the foreseeable future? You know, not right now, not the next quarter, but the next three years, the next five years, the next seven years. Push them to think out further than they're comfortable and see what comes back. Okay. Do you have some kind of structure that you use for those types of conversations. I could see consultants like, you know, well, well, what questions do I ask? You know, what, what, what's keeping you up at night? Yeah. The classic, uh, yeah. you know, 1990s I mean, that's, business. That's not the way to do yeah. it. I, so how, how do you approach that? Yeah. So to your point, we, we always go in with a structured interview guide. So we, you never want to go in cold and say, well, these are my clients. I know them. and just sort of show up. So, so you build a structured interview guide. It should be no more than like five questions. We try to keep them very short and we try to ask the questions that I just sort of threw out there, right? You know, we have sort of a starting guide that we use, but I've noticed that it changes almost every single client interaction that we have because every time every firm's a little bit different. So the questions you're going to ask are a little bit different, right? I'm looking for an example of one as we speak, just to see if I could actually give you all my, any specific examples in from that actual guide document. A lot of times we'll ask, as in this case, if you're interviewing a client, we'll ask them to look backwards and look at and look forwards. So we'll ask them to say, whenever they've done this in the past, how have they made decisions and what were their challenges they were trying to overcome? And then we might ask them, okay, if you jump ahead three years from now, what do you see as the biggest challenges in that same area? And trying to get a sense of like how their priorities are changing over time, right? So a lot of times we'll do that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I would suggest an, another way of thinking about it is if you're still looking for the questions, is there's there's a set of questions that are specific to the individual. There are a set of questions specific yeah. to the role and function. There's a set of questions for the specific company. There are questions around the peer group, whether that's company or other roles, similar roles, you know, to the person you're interviewing. It's important to just come at it from a bunch of different directions because you, you never know what's going to surface because you may find one of the key things comes out of a, the role specificity instead of the industry specificity. And that opens up a bunch of opportunity as well. Yeah, no, it's a really valid point. And, and I like the way you frame that, the idea that there's role specific, there's individual specific, there's organizational specific, there's industry specific, and, you, and the, your line of questioning is going to depend a little bit based on your strategy as a firm. One of my favorite questions that anybody who's ever done business with me knows the question that I ask all the time, it's the desired future state question. So it's the three or once question that I use all the time. And the reason I love that question is because you actually get at all those things at the same time if you ask it the right way. And then you can just keep asking, well, what else? What else? What else? And the respondent is going to answer in every one of those dimensions you just described when you ask that question. So it's, it's a great question to get at all those different areas in one take, which is why it's kind of like, I always say it's like, you want to cap it at five questions, not because, yeah, you have tons of things you want to ask, but you, you know, you're going to spend maybe 30 minutes, maybe 45 minutes if you're lucky with these clients. So 
do you want to make sure that you're you're very mindful of their time and each question you want to better go deeper, deeper, deeper. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. So step three is build a topical framework. So, so coming out of the qualitative research, you should essentially have a hypothesis of topics that you'd like to own. And your job as, uh, I guess, as a marketing leader or a you know the head of thought leadership, you know, whatever role you're in that's that's being asked, you know, that's taking leadership point on this initiative is to try to build a framework around this. And we always talk about this idea of, and, and Bob Bidet is always big on this, and he and I have done a lot of this work together over the years, and he and I have talked about this, this idea of, you know, you want to be narrow and deep, not uh, wide and shallow. So you're really looking to kind of make, I always, I like to get five master topics so I, out of this qualitative research I'm looking to identify five master topics that the firm can own, and then I'm looking to, to ladder subtopics underneath each of those five. So I end up with this grid that has you know, five big ideas at the top, things that we could own, and then anywhere from eight to 10 or more kind of going vertically beneath that. And really, at this point, you're just trying to, to make sense of what you heard from the interviews and create structure around it so that you can test it. Those five topics that you drive to, do they have to align with a given practice area or is that where most organizations want to drive to? And is that something you have to fight against? Well, to, oh, so many things flowing from my mind when you ask that question. The first one is no, they don't. And if you stop and think about it for a second, you're trying to build a thought leadership strategy that leans into your client's most pressing business issues. Their business issues have nothing to do with your practices. Their, their business issues are their business issues. You always do talk about this all the time, right? So um, your practices often are an artificial structure you've created to organize your firm. They're not necessarily what your client, you know, aligned with how your clients buy. So it's interesting. I've talked to, as you know, I've talked to a lot of editorial leaders in big and small firms. And, and the thing that I would take away is the most successful thought leadership programs are really good at being horizontal, meaning that they're really good at picking topics that can cut across multiple practices or multiple services or multiple industries. And then they get way more bang for their buck, right? Because they're able to become remembered for that, for that challenge, for that topic because they have more resources aligned up against it, if that makes sense. Step four. Step four is actually quantitative research. So it's sort of like the validation step. So you've done this qualitative work, you've built this topical framework, and now you're trying to validate whether or not, well, not validate, you're trying to determine out of this, this framework, which topics should get the most credence, which subtopics have the most value. I like to break this into two parts. They're sort of like, Part one is probably the most important. We like to do a survey of a larger sample of clients and your list of potential topics. So you're testing both your master topics and your subtopics. You might survey your current marketing list. So, so you know, clients that you've been marketing to over time. You might build a lookalike list. You know, you might work with a research firm to get your survey in front of 
other firms that look like the, the, the types of firms your clients you're looking to do business with. Regardless, your goal is to basically gauge that you know your collection of topics and subtopics based on this this twin combination of importance and confidence that Bob and I essentially carved out a couple of years ago. And the idea is you're trying to understand how important these are to the people you want to do business with and how confident they are in their ability to execute on them on their own. And you're looking for what we call the, the importance confidence gap. It's the space between what's really important and where there's really very little confidence in their abilities. Is that time consuming and expensive? I mean, it all comes down to like your, again, you know, your database, right? You may already have a really healthy database of potential clients, prospective clients, leads that you've been marketing to for a very long time. And now all you're doing is building a survey on your own through an online tool and fielding it to them. You might, in other instances, want feedback from a very hard to reach audience. You know, we had one client where, you know, we want to reach only C-suite decision makers in Fortune 50 companies, right? It's a very narrow segment. And so getting access to that segment, and in this case, we specifically wanted to hear from folks who were not our clients because we were validating the things we'd learned from our clients with people that were were not our clients. So, okay, got expensive because now we're trying to access a very narrow segment. So it just sort of depends on on the firm and your and your unique situation. But even at that, I would even say that particular survey was not prohibitively expensive. It wasn't like hundreds of thousands of dollars to field. Because again, you know, you think about the research you're trying to do, one of the things we talk a lot about in this is like you may want this to be statistically significant for external publish. You may have no intentions of ever publishing anything you learn, in which case you just need it to be significant enough that you have confidence in it. So it's not like you have to have a 95th percentile, whatever, you know, confidence interval, right? You're not sort of worried about classic market research disciplines. You're more worried about insight and learnings. And so you, you can sort of adjust, you know, your survey sample to meet your budget, if that makes any sense. Is the research to validate the topics that you've chosen so that you can prioritize them? or to go deeper in understanding the topic or issue? The former for me. It's more about validation, especially since you're doing this quantitative piece online. Usually, you can ask open-ended questions, but the responses you get in open-ended questions on an online surveys are kind of weak. You know, you're, if you want to find other subtopics or new angles, you're better off finding those in conversations. So you'd almost go through another cycle of qualitative with other sources. If you wanted to explore a, say, a subtopic further or explore a topic from a different angle, that's how you might do that. So that's a great question though. So that's how we like to do it is, again, it's all about validation. And something you and I talk about a lot is that you know, you're, <laughs> you've heard me say a million times, right? You know, We know our clients, well, your sample size is too small. So a lot of times we're doing this really just to get more feedback from a broader universe and to say, well, can we think this is really important, a big client challenge? Is it really though? Or are we just myopic here because we, you know, we're talking to our own client base and, and they see things a little differently or they've worked with us for five years and hence they, they feel really good about this and because we've taken them through great heights on that journey or whatever. Listeners cannot see me, but maybe they could hear the rattling of my bobblehead <laughs> going <laughs> up and down. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. You're absolutely right. All right. Bring this home. Step five. Okay. Before we go to step five, there's kind of a part B of step four that you might do, you might not do. And that's, you might pull in some data. You might pull in like some search data. You might pull in some marketing data. You know, you might look at like, just if you've 
you know, developed that leadership on these topics in the past, you know, what does your marketing data say about that? Whether it's CRM data, email data, you don't have to do that necessarily. Data is backwards looking. We're trying to be forwards looking, but sometimes it's useful just to kind of get a sense of what's going on. So, you, so that's why I kind of call it quantitative research because you might pull survey data and you might pair it with some some other forms of data if you're so inclined. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. If I'm fully honest. Step five is that really kind of what you'd expect it to be. It's like, you know, now you're going to prioritize topics and subtopics. You're going to build a rubric to rate your topics, you know, so you have a couple of different ways to do this sort of, you know, dimension one is the survey data you just collected, right? So you have this importance confidence gap that I've described where you can find topics and subtopics that are highly important and of low confidence. And you say, well, those are topics we want to go after. You might pair that with your marketing data. So you might say, okay, another dimension of our rubric is going to be our marketing data because we know that this topic in the past has done really, really well for whatever reason. People are likely to click through and read this. Or when, when we pitch on these types of opportunities or we are, you know, pitch is the wrong word, you know, we're pursuing an opportunity of this nature, we're likely to win. Okay. That might give us a reason to make that topic a higher priority. So you might have a piece of your rubric might be marketing data. One of my clients like to use a couple of other dimensions that I really liked. One, one was brand fit. And, and that's just sort of a, a subjective take. I was like, does this topic align well with our brand or not? And they rated each topic on how well it aligned with the brand and what the brand stands for. You might do it on subject matter expert fit, meaning like you might have a topic that you know is a big opportunity, but to your point in the prerequisites, you may not have a thought leader that really like aligns well with that. And you might say, well, that's not a great topic for us just because even though there's opportunity for us there right now, we just don't have the right voice to put on it. So maybe that's an opportunity that we need to go think about how we're going to go about it, but it might you know change the way you look at it. And then the last one is just point of view, is just you you might build a rubric that says, do we have a strong point of view on this now? And if we don't, do we have a strong reason to believe that we could develop one, which kind of dovetails with brand fit to some extent. Um, but essentially, you're building a rubric that says, okay, we, we're going to prioritize these topics and it's going to be more than just Jeff likes to write about cultural alignment. And so hence, we're going to write about cultural alignment and we're going to invest in research there. You're going to put a little more structure on this. You know, we've done it as simple as the importance confidence gap. That's it. We just use that and say, that's it. We're just going to focus on this and this only. That's all we care about. Other times we'll dovetail in some of the other things I've just described to get maybe a more complete structure around how we pick topics. And then that's your editorial calendar, right? Your editorial calendar comes out of that. You know, so you when you use that rubric to prioritize your topics, you should be able to be very specific for at least one quarter. It says for the next quarter, we are going to specifically go after these topics and here's how we're going to do it. And then you should be able to be more general for the rest of the year. You should be able to map out for a whole year. Here's all the things, the topics that we want to take ownership of over the next 12 months with enough structure in the first three to go after right now. So essentially, you know, step five is kind of your editorial calendar, right? It's sort of like, you know, it's prioritization of your efforts, which leads you to a, a calendar of sorts that you can you can operate against. That sounds pretty easy. <laughs> it's a piece of cake, right? <laughs> oh my gosh. It it is. Where do firms get stuck in those five steps? What a great question. Well, I think th there's a couple of things that come to mind. So one is that they stop, they jump to step five. They just have a conversation. They brainstorm a bunch of topics and then they say, okay, build a calendar. And so they skip everything in between. And it's not that you have to be like beholden to a process to get good outcomes. It's more that you're probably staving off opportunities without knowing it because you just haven't taken the time to do like a little more in-depth 
discovery, if you will. I think that's one way. I think the other way you would agree with, I'm sure, is they can't get out of the gate in step one. They just cannot get their heads around ideal client and they're, and they're, and they're still struggling with that after maybe years of trying. Or they'll say, well, we don't have an ideal client. We have many ideal clients. And they struggle with that, you know, trying to reconcile those two things. And then they get hung up and they give up, right? And we'll, we'll deal with that another day, right? <laughs> That's a multi-episode topic for sure. Yeah. We are coming up on time. I know anything else that you think we didn't cover that we should have covered or you wish I would have covered? Say, Jason, why don't you talk about this? As you were, you were describing some of the prioritization in the efforts, the thought occurred to me, I want to know who owns thought leadership in a firm. Who owns it for a $5 million firm, for a $25 million firm, for a $75 million firm? Because that ownership, I suspect, changes as a firm evolves and grows. I don't know necessarily with 100% confidence what the answer is. And like I said, Jeff, I don't, this client, this is this, but this will be my hypothesis of what I've seen. The $5 million firm thought leadership is owned by a partner and it's a partner that also owns a practice. So they're like, they have to own the practice part-time and part-time own thought leadership agenda for the whole firm, which creates a conflict of interest, but that's the reality. $5 million firm. $25 million firm, the best firms, a marketing leader owns it. So they've taken it away from that. They've eliminated that conflict of interest and put a marketing leader in charge of it and said, okay, you are responsible for figuring out how to develop our thought leadership strategy. And then in the $75 million firm, there's an editorial leader that's separate from the marketing leader who their only job is to that they don't have to carry anything else and have to worry about you know, all the other aspects of marketing, right? They're only focused on the thought leadership agenda over time. And I find that those people that take on those roles have some similar qualities. And tell me if, if you would agree with this. One is they're selfless to your point, right? Because of the conflict of, of interest, they're looking out for the well-being of, of the firm. They tend to be business people, not just communicators, not just researchers, not just a technically competent expert for a practice, but they're, they're business people. And they are curious individuals yeah. that are into learning, innovation, what's next. They love to learn. And they're just always turning over rocks for different topics and different channels and different ways of, of communicating, packaging, telling that thought leadership story. They just have those like combination of, of qualities. Yeah. I couldn't describe it any better. I mean, I think that's a phenomenal description of what you really want in that seat. doesn't mean you always have it. I mean, I, I, I think through my experience in this over the years, I, I can think of clients where they, maybe they only had two of those things or one of those things. And I really wish they had more of the second and the third. But yeah, I 100% agree. You know, that kind of selflessness, the business thinking, curiosity, I think is the biggest one. You know, just being curious. You've always done it that way. Okay, well, <laughs> maybe we shouldn't do it that way anymore. Who says, right? Like they, they asking that question of everybody solves that problem that way. They, they do. How's it working? 
not that great. Well, maybe even there's a better way. Maybe we should research that and find out, right? And people look at them like they're crazy that they want to spend you know hard dollars to research something that seems obvious. And they suddenly go, well, actually, it turns out it wasn't obvious. You know, it's kind of like our, our good friend Matt Dixon, who's been on now twice, right? You know, it's obvious who the rain market makers are in any firm. Is it really? You know, turns out it's not. I don't know if that episode's going to release before this one or not. I, in fact, I don't think it will release before this one. So this will be a bit of a tease, teaser. teaser for, for that <laughs> when that comes, right? All right. So all five steps in one. Oh, well, okay. I'll tell you what, I'll pull the whole thing together, everything in one. So leadership strategy, what is it? It is a description of the client business challenges you want to own for the foreseeable future. And when we say own, that means investing in intellectual property, marketing, content, and designing specific solutions. Why this matters? It matters because it's the future of your business. The things that you choose to own from a thought leadership perspective today will be the business that you are producing, you're doing with your clients two to three years from now. And there are five steps to building a really effective thought leadership strategy. Step one is getting alignment within your leadership team on your ideal client. Step two is doing qualitative discovery-based research. So learning, you're looking to learn. Step three is building a topical framework, building a structure around what you've learned. You know, so getting everything you learned and get organizing it. Step four is quantitative research. So validating that framework, saying, okay, well, wh which of these topics are the best? Which of these ones are maybe not so great for whatever reason? And then step five is prioritizing based on what you learn from your validation process and building an editorial calendar to make it happen. So we could on this podcast in two minutes and just move on, huh? Yeah, you could have. Why'd you take so long? I don't know. What the was bloviate. I doing? What was I? Yeah, it's Bloviation Nation. Hashtag. Well done, buddy. I think that's great. Good. Thank you. It was fun. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher.